0: Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And Today I'm delighted to be speaking once again with Patrick Wood, who is editor-in-chief of Technocracy News and Trends, which you will find at www.technocracy.news, which, as I always say, is the key place on the internet to keep up to date with what is happening in the world. As regards the increasingly powerful, unfortunately so, increasingly powerful ideology of technocracy, which we have spoken about with him several times before on this programme. Patrick Wood specialises in analysing trends in economics and politics and the historical analysis of globalism and its elites. He has been an investment advisor since the the mid-1970s and co-authored the famous two-volume book with Dr. Anthony Sutton called Trilaterals Over Washington. Pat, thank you ever so much for joining us again on the program. Great to speak to you.
1: I'm really glad to do that, and especially because so much of our site traffic is now coming from Great Britain. I never anticipated this, but every day I watch the numbers come in, the statistics, you know, on where traffic is coming from around the world. And a lot of people are interested in your nation to follow what's going on with technocracy.
0: Absolutely. And you sent me proof of that, didn't you? You sent me just this little JPEG where you'd taken a, I think it was a screenshot of uh, the analysis of that. And I could see all these little arrows pointing all over the UK. So in fact, there are quite a few in the Northwest. So there are a lot of people around me here who are tuning into Technocracy News. Yeah, so it is good to speak to you. And this, as I said to you before the beginning of the interview, this is in fact our sixth conversation, which I find almost oh, yeah. impossible to believe, but that is the case. Um yeah. Because I find your analysis, I always say this every time, I find your analysis and your interpretation of world events, you know, the ways... That the world is changing in terms of this ideology of technocracy. I find that very helpful, and I know there are many listeners who find that helpful as well. So, yet again, uh, it's great to be able to get your insights on this program. Now, we have talked in the past about your first book on this subject, um, I suppose, in a way, your first book on this subject was the one that you co-authored with Dr. Anthony Sutton, but uh, the one that actually has technocracy in the title, Uh, Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation, and your follow-up book, Technocracy, the Hard Road to World Order. I recommend both of those, and I hope people will get copies of those if they haven't got them already. The show notes, of course, will have all the information. Mm -hmm. But today, we're going to be talking about um, this whole coronavirus situation that we're in and what that has to do with technocracy, which may not seem immediately obvious, but believe you me, it does, in fact, have something to do with the advancement of this particular ideology, because a week or so ago, you produced a video at Technocracy News and Trends, which you called Is the Great panic of 2020 technocracy's coup d'etat in which you made this claim and i think it's a convincing claim that this pandemic is being used by powerful technocrats as a as an excuse as a pretext to refashion the world into their new economic world order um some people might think why am i saying new economic world order why am i not just saying new world order well perhaps you will you will explain as we go along why it's the new right. economic world order that's what we're going to be talking about um but for the sake of listeners who are not familiar with this term there will be some could you briefly describe what you know what on earth is this thing called technocracy where did this come from
1: absolutely well there's two aspects of the term it's important to make the right distinction on it if you use the word technocracy with a small t or technocrat with a small t basically it means running things by experts experts of one type or another could be scientists could be engineers Uh, take control of some aspect of public policy and they just run it according to what they think is right. However, technocracy with a capital T was an ideology that – well, actually, that's not even correct. It's not even an ideology. It's an economic system. It was was designed at Columbia University in 1932 uh, during the heat of the Great Depression to replace capitalism and free enterprise. They were convinced that capitalism was dead uh, in the Great Depression – They believed that the politicians were responsible for killing it. Maybe they were, who knows, but that's beside the point. Uh, But these engineers and scientists at Columbia said, well, we can do this because we're pretty smart. And so they created this economic system called technocracy. And it was to be a resource-based economic system where everything would be managed and controlled by technocrats, not politicians they wanted to dismiss all politicians, as a matter of fact. In other words, there would be no representative government at all. They would just simply take the helm, and they would run society for the benefit of the people. In 1938, a definition surfaced in one of their official publications that I thought was pretty good. I'll read it, just one short paragraph. Hmm. Technocracy is the science of social engineering. The scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. And that's really a nutshell of what it is. It's an economic system designed to encompass the entire population. That that means no person left behind, right? Everybody has to play ball.
0: Okay, and you are criticizing this, but you're yes. not against, I always have to say this every time, but we must clarify this, you are not against science. Are you? You're not against scientists and engineers. It- that's right.
1: Uh, and I have to say the majority of scientists and engineers – would
0: never be called technocrats. They wouldn't want
1: to be called technocrats. In my experience, and I know plenty of people in science and in engineering in different capacities, who are just normal people who are interested in using their skills and knowledge for serving mankind. But the technocrat steps over the line when he figures he can use his craft to control people. Mm. And that's the big difference here. Uh, Social engineering is the idea of looking outbound to people and thinking, hmm, what can I do to cause their behavior to change somehow? You know, desire for control is where the real danger comes in here. And I think one time we talked about the role of
0: scientism,
1: how the philosophical underpinnings of scientism are seen throughout the the technocracy movement We did. And and
0: that's why, of course, I'm referring to it as an ideology. But I take your point that just to call it an ideology misses out this aspect of the economic theory connected with it. Yeah,
1: You could say it started as an ideology and then its expression became control over all economic matters in the system.
0: And I suppose some people might think that's a good thing. If you've got experts who right. really know what they're talking about, who are coordinating everything and making sure that all the resources are balanced and all that sort of thing, well, yeah, that would be a great way for the world to go, wouldn't it?
1: Well, you know, theoretically, you could give some coinage to that. Um, you know, it kind of sounds a little bit utopian, but if you look at what some experts have actually accomplished with society, there are great dangers in it as well. I'm, I just posted an article this morning that more pertains to our country, Um The so-called common core education standards that have been introduced into our school system, and it's pretty much in tatters right now, but nevertheless, there's still plenty of it perpetuating on our education system. The the common core education standard was funded primarily by Bill Gates, you know, the billionaire – Computer nerd of Microsoft, (laughs) and you
0: were just talking about your your Windows 10. (laughs) Indeed, yes, yes, and his name is coming up a lot, of course, to do with vaccines at the moment. Yeah.
1: So this article pointed out um, there was a study done on actual uh, student scores, you know, testing and stuff like that, and the study came up and, and concluded that Common Core is essentially behind the historic drop in student scores in America, and the drop has been huge, just absolutely stunning. Students are just, you know, being literally mentally destroyed because of this man's meddling with our education system. Well, he's very clearly one of these technocrat-minded people. He thinks he knows better than everybody right. else, and he's got a lot of money. And he says, "Hey, I'm going to step in here and I'm going to do some great thing for humanity." Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he ended yeah. up completely destroying a couple of generations of uh, young students.
0: Well, you're very much echoing what we had Duke Pester a couple of times on this program actually saying the very same sort of thing as you just said there. So that that is a, a practical example of this sort of technocratic attitude, jumping in to improve things and actually not achieving that objective at all.
1: Well, exactly. And we'll see a little bit more. In fact, we're going to see a lot more of this as we start talking about the COVID-19 What I'm now calling, personally, I'm now calling the Great Panic of 2020. Right. I think that's going to go down in history, It's the Great Panic of 2020.
0: Now, you said that this economic system, those people who were advocating this in the first place, they weren't interested in government. A lot of people might think, well, that's a great thing, you know, let's get a smaller government, let's get that out of the way. But um, it's more the case of leaving governance to the so-called experts and their systems. That kind of sounds a bit like an autocratic system. You have explained in the past that it's not communist it's not fascist so how does it relate to that kind of term communism fascism
1: they really don't those are political systems communism and fascism are both a political system as much as anything hmm. technocracy simply wants to just control the economic system directly it never made any kind of um, provision for representation of the people in the government system if you could call it government there's there's just gone And, of course, the tradition in both Great Britain as well as the United States is a concept of uh, citizen representation one way or another. Slightly, It's different, obviously, between our countries. But Hmm. we have a constitutional republic. It's a very intricate system that allows the people to have input into how our government is run and what it looks like and how the society is constructed and so on. These are the political issues. And the concept in a constitutional republic is – Keep your hands off the economy, let it take care of itself, and protect the economic system with the rule of law. And that means, you know, don't pick the winners and losers, just leave them alone and let the people sort that out. And in Great Britain, you have a a similar system, very proud tradition of citizen representation, people you elect, the parliament, so on, and local governments that you have. They would simply just do away with all that. They saw no need for it. I said, well, why do you need to have representation like that if we're just doing what's right and we know what's right because we're scientists after
0: all? Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, so that, <laughs> As far as this is concerned, that, that all gets in the way. That represents an opportunity for inefficiency, I suppose.
1: Oh, my. You know, what it really in, ends up being in the end is a scientific dictatorship hmm. where everything is ruled by algorithm, essentially. I mean, it's just like, well, here's the rules. You follow them hmm. or else we're just going to bounce you out of the system. <laughs> Hmm. Think of the of the social credit scoring system in China right now, where people are either given privileges or denied privileges according to their social credit score. If you're a good little citizen, you get to do things. If you're not, if you're a troublemaker, you jaywalk, you smoke, or whatever, and they decide is bad, it drops your score, and you begin to lose privileges left and right if your score drops low enough.
0: And that, up to now, has seemed to be an incredible thing that that should happen here in the West, And yet this is the kind of thing that we're seeing dawning with this Coronavirus response. Um, We will come on to that in just a few moments, but I I just want to check with you that I'm right. You say that this idea of technocracy underwent something of a transformation, a rebranding, if you like, into sustainable development. Mm. And that happened, I think it was in the late 1980s, the early 1990s. Could you talk us through something of that so that we can understand the connection there? Because if it's now called sustainable development, we need to understand its connections to technocracy.
1: Yes, absolutely. That story starts in 1973 with the founding of the Trilateral Commission. Co founders were David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski. Brzezinski has written, had written a book, he's an academic. He ri- had written uh, Between Two Ages America's Role in the Technotronic Era. And during that time, uh, during the 60s, late 60s, he was a professor at Columbia University. Oddly enough, the same place where techtocracy started originally. Mm <laughs> hmm. So when I discovered historic technocracy, I immediately thought of Brzezinski's book, immediately, because that's what we wrote about with uh, what I wrote about with Sutton. I said, I got to go back and read that book again and see if there's any connection here between. Was he really saying something about technocracy? It kind of sounds familiar to me. And I went back and read his book. Sure enough, it's just full of propaganda, if you will, from the original technocracy meme. He called it the technotronic era. And he said that that was the end game. That's where we're headed uh, in the world. It's a technotronic era. And there's several steps we need to get there. And he specified those steps. He was a brilliant man in many ways. I don't agree with him on anything, but he was brilliant. And Rockefeller really liked that idea of a technotronic era because it meant that resources would be taken away from people and put into the hands of the global elite. was a good business move. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think Rockefeller knew even back then, as other bankers did, that there was a limit to money when money would just run out of efficacy and, you know, the whole system, financial system essentially would fall apart. Theoretically, I think that there's a big case for that. Hmm. But when you run out of money, what do you do? Well, the only thing that makes any sense to me, would be to actually go for the resources themselves. Well, just get the real estate, get the timber, get the farming, get the oil, get the gold and the silver and whatever's in the ground. That's where the wealth is anyway. That's where all wealth is created. Absolutely. So get control of the resources. And it doesn't matter what monetary system you have in place. You can call the shots and do whatever you want to do. And there's you and then there's everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I think this was the plan when the commission originally said they're going to create a new international economic order. The very next year, 1974, the United Nations passed a resolution. <laughs> you just won't believe this. I wish I could show you the picture. They passed a resolution calling for the establishment of a new international economic order. They used the same phrase at the United Nations. Wow. Uh, the UN called a convention called the Frontland Commission. There was a more acronym name for it that they called it but it was it was chaired by Gru harlem Bruntland from europe hmm. and that ran from 83 to 87 and at the termination of that committee they produced a book called our common future and our common future became the textbook for the creation of agenda 21 in 1992 at the rio de janeiro conference In Brazil. Right. And that's where sustainable development became the meme for the world. It was the agenda for the 21st century. That's why they call it Agenda 21. And since then, it's been changed, it's been put forward. Now there's a 2030 agenda, there's a new urban agenda, and other things like that. But uh, it's essentially all the same. Sustainable development is established as the term now that came out of our common future, the book.
0: So how does Gro Harlem Brundtland fit into this by way of personal connections?
1: Well, Gro Harlem Brundtland happened to be a member of the Trilateral Commission. She still is. (laughs) And the question immediately comes up when I saw that about drop my teeth. And I said, you know what? Was she creating (laughs) policy? Was she writing policy for the Trilateral Commission's new international economic order? Or was she doing something totally different? You know, something new for the service of mankind. And lo and behold... New, it was the same, had all the same elements as original technocracy in it. It's a resource-based economic system. It is the Trilateral Commission's new international economic order. And I established this in my latest book quite pointedly because I want people to see that it's one and the same. It just got rebranded. The name didn't work, I guess, for him, whatever, but sustainable development is kind of sexy because you can't argue against it. Well, you want to be a sustainable, don't you? Uh, <laughs>
0: yes. I can see it works incredibly oh, well. Yes. It, yes,
1: it really does. So, so sustainable development became this economic system that the United Nations has brought forward all these years. And just, I think, four years ago, the head of climate change at the United Nations, uh, her name was Christiana Figueres. Listeners will remember right. this lady. Mm-hmm. She's still around. She's not working for the UN anymore. She said in a press release, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we're setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution.
0: It's an incredible quotation. February the 3rd, 2015, at a press conference in Brussels, and I'll provide a link to it. Uh, we've discussed this a number of times before, and I have the quote in front of me. Yes, indeed, to intentionally change this yes. economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. So, I mean, what is that model? That presumably is the free market model.
1: Yes, exactly. It is. And what's really kind of striking about this is, it uses the word intentional, mm that means it's not just, you know, a hope or whatever, it's like they have an intention to do this. And secondly, mm-hmm. they have a defined period of time. That means they have a timetable to make it happen. Mm-hmm. That's very significant. Mm-hmm. And then they have the object of course of the of the transformation, the object of the intention and the object at the end of that defined mm-hmm. period of time is to do away with the economic model altogether and replace it with sustainable development. So, it's very yeah. clear what the United Nations set out to do. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's very utopian, isn't it? We've talked before about this. When you actually look at the list of goals, this is the United Nations wishes to achieve through this. Uh, they are incredibly utopian, just largesse for all and protection for all. And as if we're going to step into this wonderful world that is going to be controlled but beautiful. And it just smacks of something totally unrealistic. Oh,
1: my. Yeah, that's really kind of understandable. But You know, when, <laughs> yeah. when you read the 17 sustainable development goals that they produced with the 2030 agenda just a few years ago, mm-hmm. those 17 start out just like you say, end poverty for all. That's number one. Yeah. Have jobs with dignity for everyone. That's good. I want a job with dignity. As you say, you
0: can't argue against it, can you? That's right. And, and, <laughs> not, not on the face of lifelong, it without analyzing what's and, 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 going on. That's yeah.
1: right. And then they talk about lifelong education for everyone. Mm. Well, that sounds pretty good. It's like mm. a lifelong subscription to an online university or something. I <laughs> said, so, wow, I can just learn all I want. Yeah. Those things sound great. But when you get down into the sustainable development goals, you get down around goal 15, you find out what the price is that you're going to pay to get those things. And the price is… You're going to turn over all economic activity to us. We're going to specify what is sustainable production, and we're going to specify what is sustainable consumption. And that's it. It's just like original technocracy. We're going to balance both sides of that equation. We're going to limit – we're going to allocate resources in a a scientific way, and we'll make the decision on what people are allowed to make – that is, manufacturers and service people, whatever – And then on the other side of the coin, we will decide what you're allowed to consume as a consumer. Mm -hmm. And they've gone to great lengths to provide details on what that could mean. For instance, golf courses are not sustainable. Just think about that. Yeah. Wait a minute. A lot of people like to play golf. Yeah, I'm not not a golfer, but we have lots of golf courses in Arizona.
0: I'm not a golfer either, but uh, (laughs) I would defend people's rights to play golf. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
1: Sure. Hmm. That's right. I would too. Well, they say ranching is not sustainable. You like red meat? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. A lot of people do, but they say, no, that's not a sustainable thing. We need to cut back or do away with that altogether. Well, this is the micromanagement of society that will turn into a scientific dictatorship where we end up being the cattle in the feedlot, so to speak.
0: (laughs) Well, indeed, yes. There was that global biodiversity report, wasn't there, which was suggesting, you know, we're very much overpopulated. The world can only sustain so many people. And that's, I mean, they didn't spell everything out, but you do think to yourself, good heavens, you know, how do you get to a far less populated world? That's quite a chilling thought.
1: Well, yes, and, of course, depopulation is a major meme of the United Nations Mm. right now. Mm. They're all into that, and it's still based on the lie that was put forth originally in in Paul Ehrlich's population bomb, He wrote that in 68 or something like that. Not one of his predictions came true. Not one single thing he ever wrote came true. In fact, population is going down right now, not up on a global basis. And people still hang on to this at the United Nations. Oh, my gosh, the world is just going to fill up with people Mm. and we're all going to die. It's a form of alarmism. We've got to stop the world from having too many people and Mother Nature just can't take it
0: anymore people talk about now a demographic winter don't they in many countries in the west that we don't actually have enough people I know. Don't have enough young people to sustain the economy to you know allow people who are retired to have a decent income and that kind of thing it's right back-to-front right. thinking um obviously we could talk about this a great deal but i think people have got a good idea now of what we're talking about and certainly if anybody wants to go into more detail then there are those five other interviews which i shall actually list in the show notes for people to go back and listen to and i highly rec- recommend that you do i want to turn our attention attention. attention now to how this coronavirus situation relates to technocracy because in this video presentation of yours you put forward the idea that this is currently a coup d'etat for those with a technocratic mindset now this this is often used in a hyperbolic sense I mean do you mean it that way is this just a a headline or do you seriously mean this is a coup d'etat
1: I absolutely mean it. With every bone in my body, I really do believe at this point they have pulled a coup d'etat. And I've written about the possibility of this uh, for well over six years now. Mm. If there was ever a time, remember the word intentional, right? If there ever was a time, if they ever figured they had enough power to actually pull it off, would they do it? Would they shut the system down and declare game over? And this is exactly what's happened. How it happened is a secondary story the fact is that it did happen and here we are <laughs> you know you could either say well it was just an unintended consequence it was an accident it was just a bunch of fools that acted stupidly or it's a coup d'etat of technocracy and after my further research on this i do believe it's a coup d'etat of technocracy
0: and but this is an extrapolation from it is. current events Absolutely. isn't it because Absolutely. i mean we are in this shutdown situation Absolutely. we're in a shutdown situation But the general impression is that this is going to lift. People are talking about how we're going to gradually get back to not how things were exactly as they were before, but some semblance of normality. So why do you think this is going to be something permanent?
1: Well, let's talk about kind of have to develop this in in sequence, I think. Let's talk about global warming for a minute or climate change. Hmm. Climate change has been the United Nations primary instrument to drive sustainable development. And if you've never thought about this before, if your listeners haven't, I'm, I'm going to read a short, one short sentence from a United Nations report called Sustainable Development from Bruntland to Rio 2012. And back in 2012, that was 20 years after the original Rio agreement, uh, there was a 20-year meeting, and the United Nations put out a rather large report called Sustainable Development from Bruntland to Rio 2012. And in the executive summary of that, right up front on the first page, this is what they say, climate change has become the de facto proxy for the implementation of the sustainable development agenda. And I want to use that for my first connection here. Climate change and global warming was never an issue unto itself. It was always the proxy for the implementation of sustainable development agenda. So it never took on a life of its own. It has always been under the control of the sustainable development crowd in one form or another. And it's been used to drive society or stampede society into
0: sustainable development. Do you agree that it was also used by the Club of Rome as a proxy?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It was. You do. The Club mm-hmm. of Rome, mm-hmm. uh, originally with their book Limits, uh, Limits to Growth, they were really kind of the original instigators of this whole thing okay and you know we talked about rockefeller founding the trilateral commission and people say well see that's not the club of rome that's you know this is another group of people well listen the club of rome was founded at david rockefeller's italian villa
0: (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) Why am I not surprised to hear about these connections? Yeah. Oh, really? It's
1: like, yes, it was. It's the same crowd. You know, they were were all together in various forms back then, and and as a whole thing congealed, this is what we have today. So climate change has been disingenuous in that sense, and we all know of recent time the irrational hysteria that has been wrapped around the climate change mantra, We've seen people like Greta Thunberg yes. get before the United Nations and get in front of students. And, <laughs> oh, my gosh, you've got 10 or 12 years to live, you little rascals, you. And if you don't yeah. do something and- –
0: you know even before you know the the work of Corey Morningstar and I've read her blog posts about this going into yes. some of the background of this extensive background I mean even before that when I first heard about this young girl I thought how is it possible this person just does this lone protest and then ends up incredibly quickly in front of the World economic Forum I mean just there's something going on there you know yes. and then of course we find that yes indeed she is being exploited heavily yeah
1: oh yes and of course she's not the only one you have climate extinction a group that is just so radical, uh, trying to change society. It's not even funny. So I remember there was a professor, there was a lady professor in England her, her name escapes me now. And I I posted an article about it on technocracy news and I can't look at, i won't look it up right this second, but no, no. she wrote this book and people were celebrating her book because she's a university professor. And I never, honestly, I'd never heard of the university, but it's probably a legitimate one in somewhere in Great Britain. And she said the answer to this whole thing, this is the answer. To save the planet, we need to let the human race go extinct.
0: I can't think of her name, but I have listened to one of her lectures, actually. I know that she exists, and I know the university exists. Yes. Wish I could remember, but I can't. <laughs> I,
1: I know. But what kind of person talks like this? It's a human that's alive. This just doesn't make any sense. Well, this is hysteria, anyway, all I want to say. Yeah. The hysteria surrounding climate change is part of the mantra to drive people to sustainable development because that's the only solution they ever offer. There's no plan B or C. There's no reforming or restructuring of capitalism or the free enterprise system. It's always a one-way street straight into sustainable development. Well, this hysteria, it gets greater and greater every cycle because – it takes more panic to move people, hmm. kind of like a dope addict that he needs more more dope to get the you know the same high as he goes on because he gets resistant to one dosage and he's got to up it to get the same level of satisfaction. And so hysteria is like that. Fear is like that. You, if you want to move people from point A to B mm. and one level of fear doesn't work, well, you up the ante. You panic them even worse than before, and then you try and get them to move. Because when people are fearful, they're easy to manipulate. Mm. And the global elite knows that. I mean, any psychologist knows that, yeah, too. Yes, indeed. So you have established yeah, a link yeah. between mm. climate change and that hysteria surrounding it and sustainable development.
0: And I might add, before you go on, that actually has nothing to say about whether anthropogenic global warming is true or not, does it? I mean, you could even accept that, I am skeptical, but you could accept the establishment climate science position and still find that this is being manipulated.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And I'm at this point in my writing career, I'm not even interested in the science anymore of climate change. Right. They've beat it to death so many times, and there's so many good scientists that have refuted almost every point that the alarmist ever came up with, but I I just don't even go there anymore. I'm looking at the other things that technocrats do.
0: Absolutely. The only reason why I brought it up is that there may be people listening who think, oh dear, this is all to do with what, you know, the the phrase goes, climate denialism, which is a phrase I loathe because it shuts down thinking straight away. But nevertheless, there might be some people thinking, oh, it's to do with that. But actually, it isn't, is it? This is a separate point parallel to the whole question about climate science.
1: Well, it is, and I think we, as we jump over into the coronavirus issue, we can make this point. And I would start out by just saying, is the virus real? Well, yes, of course it's real, and yes. nobody's yes. questioning that. It's real. It's nasty. Even if it's just a flu bug, it's one of the nastiest that's come down the pike for a long time.
0: You you do say nobody's questioning that. There are some people out there questioning that with whom I won't have anything to do. But nevertheless, there are people, you know, driving around hospitals and saying, oh, you know, it's all a hoax and all this. But neither of us is saying that today, clearly.
1: Well, people can say it's a hoax and stuff, but still, people are getting sick. They're getting very high temperatures. Their lungs are filling up with stuff. And some people, it's, it's very deadly. Like the population over 75, they have a, like 30 times the risk of dying than does a 45-year-old. Mm. So, yeah, it's a serious thing. But that's not the point. Yeah. The point is, even though there's some science behind the virus itself, the narrative of the virus— was taken over on day one by the same climate change crowd that was creating, at least was involved in creating the hysteria over climate change. And here's what really clued me in on this. When, when I saw the hysteria, the panic surrounding the coronavirus initially, my radar went up because it seemed to me it had the same feel as the paranoia that was coming out of the climate change crowd. There was something about it. Just, I've felt this before. And so I said, I've got to do some serious research on this. Where did this whole thing start? Who who made these recommendations in the first place, essentially to shut down the global economy? Hmm. And it was quite a
0: story. And that's where we need to Okay, <laughs> Are we talking the World Health Organization? Well,
1: yes. They were sitting on the sidelines, um, and they immediately picked up The gauntlet, when it was thrown down to them, they immediately picked it up and ran with it. And remember that the World Health Organization is a full-fledged agency of the United Nations, just like UNEP and UNESCO and so on. They are part of the United Nations. And as such, they have all of the goals of the United Nations in mind, even though they're concerned with health issues. So the World Health Organization was immediately part of the hysteria. Okay. But the original person that I can trace back to that started this hysteria in the first place was a professor at Imperial College by the name of Neil Ferguson, Dr. Neil Ferguson. And I thought, this is incredible because I recognized Imperial College as being one of those colleges that has produced climate change reports that stimulated the climate change hysteria. Or at least they were used to stimulate the hysteria surrounding climate change. And as I looked at Imperial College and as I looked at Dr. Neil Ferguson himself, he was the one that produced the first computer model that predicted 500,000 were going to die in Great Britain and 1.2 million plus were going to die in the United States. And it was like screaming fire in a crowded theater. It just sparked. All of a sudden, it just sparked. And you're right. Ed, the World Health Organization immediately magnified his findings. And other groups as well. In our country, the Center for Disease Control, Dr. Anthony Fauci immediately stepped in and say, oh, my gosh, you know, we're, we need to shut everything down immediately. And the policy recommendations that nations of the world, yours and mine included, were served up by the same Dr. Neil Ferguson. And he'd been actually trying this for some years with other serious illnesses like Ebola and SARS and MERS, and it failed. But he came back with this one, and he said what you needed to do to save yourselves was to shut down all schools, universities and grade schools and K-12 schools, practice social distancing, and you essentially need to shut the economy down and just quit letting people be exposed to each other. And these policy recommendations – went right along with his call for all these people to die. And it set a panic in place for the entire planet. Everybody just went nuts over this all at the
0: same time. Hmm. So are you you pointing at him as being blameworthy in this or the way in which his research has been used?
1: No, I'm pointing at him because he, and I will continue to point to him
0: Hmm. until we hear from him.
1: (laughs) And we have not yet heard from him except to say, that, oh, gee, I guess my model was overstated at a half a million. I think I'll reduce it down to 25,000 in England. <laughs> it's a, there's a big difference there. Dr. Ferguson. Yes, but isn't that... Between... Yeah.
0: But wasn't the... I mean, the the actual report was this impact of non-pharmaceutical interventions to reduce COVID-19 mortality and healthcare demand. That's the one, isn't it, that came out of Imperial? Yes. um, That he presented. And this is where he states there's likely to be 500,000 fatalities in the UK if various measures are not carried out the social distancing kind of measures well he produced that in order to say look if you don't do this this is what's going to happen and so when he then says talks about the twenty i i'm guessing he's saying well that's what we're expecting if these measures are carried out so is there really a change of mind there or is this just a a working through of his own logic
1: yeah i know you know there that this is the argument right now they're saying even in america that while the reason the numbers are so low is because our policies have been so successful. Yeah. And that's an f- absolutely false conclusion. The real data does not support that whatsoever, in my opinion. And again, I'm not coming at this from a scientific point of view, but I want to point out that Neil Ferguson has no medical training. He's not a medical doctor. He's not a medical no. researcher. He's an epidemiologist.
0: Uh-huh. But wouldn't you need to be an epidemiologist in order to do this kind of work? Because it's essentially statistical.
1: Well, it is statistical, and that's what he is. He's a statistician. His uh-huh. PhD, his earned PhD, was in the philosophy of physics. Okay, well, that's nice. Um,
0: uh,
1: but he's, he's a mathematician, and he is a statistician, and that's what he does.
0: Yeah, sure. I'm not sure it's philosophy of physics, is it? I mean, it sounds, I looked up his PhD, and it sounds to me like material science. So he is a scientist, He's obviously a very mathematically-based scientist. Because yes. if you actually If you read the, the title of his PhD, which is out of Oxford, uh, so it's a DPhil, uh, most of PhDs, but for some reason, Oxford calls them DPhils, same thing. Uh, hmm. It's, uh, quote, continuous interpolations from crystalline to dynamically triangulated random surfaces. <laughs> so that sounds like material science to me. I wouldn't understand it, but uh, that's not the philosophy of right. science, is it? right. He is a scientist. Yep. I, I take the point that he's not yes, a, a yes. medical doctor. But
1: yeah. What I what I had picked up off of Imperial College's website, which of course could be wrong, or maybe it was off. Maybe it was on the World Health Organization. There's a bio. Okay. It said his Master of Arts degree was in physics, and then his Doctor of Philosophy was in theoretical physics. And another somebody else said it was in the philosophy of theoretical physics, which is a degree. Um and it's a very heady degree, I might add. Um so a mathematician uh basically produced a study that said the world was gonna have all these deaths and stuff and here's what they needed to do about it. And I just personally I can only ask myself, well, um hmm, what gave him credentials to make world-class policies Mm uh recommendations like this that were kind of iffy in the first place? Well since then in any case, since this original study came out, just about every country in the world is, is panicked into shutting down their economic system. This was one of the primary goals in the first place. And what we know about Imperial College is that it is a sustainable university. And their website, uh, their, their statement from the president of, uh, her name is uh, Professor Alice Gast, I believe. She says that the three general areas of focus at Imperial are epidemics, shortages of natural resources, and environmental crises. And that sustainable development is kind of the thread that goes through the whole university, you know, all the various areas of study. So this is the kind of output that they say they have. They study epidemic, shortage of natural resources, environmental crises. Well, since this study came out, there have been two other things that were brought to the table by other scientists that, Apparently know Dr. Neil Ferguson, and I'm just kind of passively posting them on technocracy.news because I figured they were they relate. One is that Ferguson was accused of a patchy record of modeling pandemics, and the article wrote about um, the episode in 2001 in Great Britain where hoof and mouth disease broke out. And I was close to ranching back then, and I remember that. It was kind of concerning to me because we had livestock. And uh, there was just a mass culling of livestock in England that really kind of devastated rural communities and stuff. But that was an episode that Neil Ferguson was directly involved in, in more or less the same way. He produced a computer model, and then he also said, this is what we need to do. We need to um, you know, cull the herd and they end up killing just a huge, I forget how many animals it was that ended, it actually ended up dying, but it was, it was a huge amount. And so that was, that was one thing that was interesting. And then another article just came out out of um, Times of India by a research team, the head of a research team there, that claims that the study that Ferguson put out at Imperial College was greatly flawed. They're giving very succinct reasons on why it's flawed and Mm. it never should have been released in the first place. And to me, it plays into the whole mantra that there was something else going on here besides science.
0: Well, hmm. but it seems to me that you are actually making quite a serious accusation here. I mean, there's one thing to say, okay, maybe it was flawed. There are other academics saying it's flawed. That's one thing. Maybe his report, his research is wrong but you seem to be saying that actually he was intending to do something else rather than primarily science, that he was actually trying to shut down the world economy for you know, ideological reasons. That seems a very serious accusation.
1: Well, you know, I realize it is, and I, I will qualify it just a little bit to say, well, maybe he was just completely ignorant and he really is just kind of a loose cannon. And he did this and he just doesn't have any connection, any of that stuff. On the other hand, Imperial College is tightly associated with the United Nations. Hmm. And they have chosen to wrap sustainable development into the
0: university all through its various uh, disciplines. I, I see your grounds for suspicion, but I personally wouldn't wish to jump to the conclusion that you seem to be making at the moment. I'm not saying you know, it's completely groundless. There's a ground for suspicion. But beyond that... Can you really tie up those loose ends yet? I'm I'm not convinced.
1: Well, okay, I can can concede that, that there will be more loose ends tied up, perhaps in the future. Mm. But in the meantime, the United Nations, having stated they want to kill off capitalism, climate change saying they want to kill off capitalism, and all of the hysteria surrounding those other elements Mm. that want to kill off capitalism, and then all of a sudden capitalism is taking a major hit.
0: I take your. It- I know. I do take your point that there is grounds for suspicion, as I said before. Yeah, but I do wonder whether you're jumping the gun, actually pointing the barrel, as it were, at Professor Ferguson and saying that his intentions were other than it seems to be. Um,
1: well, time will tell. He needs to. He needs to come out and you know make a statement or get involved. His paper that he put out a couple of weeks ago. Finally, he put a paper out. He was just advising behind the scenes initially. When he finally released a paper, the team in. India, that was working on this, pointed out that his paper was not peer-reviewed. It pointed out that his computer model, uh, he had never released the source code for it, so it could be independently verified and checked. There's lots of problems in this. And my first question, be: if it was just incompetence, should the world be changed by a non-peer-reviewed scientific report by a computer model that nobody in the world has checked except the person that wrote it? I would say no, Mm -hmm. it's unreasonable.
0: But this takes the emphasis off the individual to the forces that are in play thereafter, doesn't it? You know, once the the ball is rolling, how do you stop it? There are all sorts of vested interests who are trying to make something of this coronavirus pandemic. And I absolutely believe that is true, because I mean, there are all sorts of factors. And perhaps we should go on to talk about those. I mean, you talk about people hijacking the narrative, and that does seem to be the order of the day. We have technocratic flavoured responses to this all over the show. Just a few things came to mind, you know, like get rid of cash, because it's dangerous if you touch it these days you know when it was paper it wasn't so bad now it's plastic oh you know you mustn't touch cash So let's get rid of it um let's mm. make sure that people say the right things on social media we don't know nobody going against the the best advice of science and all that sort of thing and you know let's reboot our economies with green deals let's monitor everybody let's even talk about global government that seems to have come back into the news just recently so um, loads of things to talk about there but the, all those things i've just said do seem to represent different vested interests trying to make something of this um well we could go anywhere but let's just go to the cashless society one because this is one that we've talked about a number of times on the program before we had david haggith i think we've talked to you about it before as well and others um this has been coming a long time the reasons are given like digital currencies convenient and that would help with fighting crime if people can't money launder Mm -hmm. with cash anymore that sort of thing um and so now we have banknotes of virus carriers This virus is persuading people to go cashless like never before. And I have to admit that I've been going to the shops and I've used my contactless payment for the first time. And I've said to myself, as I was doing it, I'll go back, of course, to using cash and that sort of thing. But, you know, once you start these things, it's very difficult to roll back from them, isn't it?
1: Well, it is. And this is one of the biggest fears in America right now is that all the things that are happening here Once the government grabs the power to do something, they very seldom ever give it back. And so we're at risk of losing a lot of ground, um, you know, liberty-wise in our country, I think. And economically, the things like, you know, the cash issue and stuff, you know, it's almost a foregone conclusion at this point that they're going to win that point and, and that we will eventually end up in a cashless society. And we've seen rumors come out from, I think, China started this one that cash, actual cash can be, you know, can carry the virus. Never been proven, but somebody said it, and oh my gosh, you know, I can't touch cash anymore. (laughs) And, you know, it's not the virus itself that's the issue, it's the the panic, it's the hysteria that is surrounding whatever the virus is. And I still haven't seen a definitive thing on exactly what this virus is, other than it is and it's uh, serious and it may be Man generated, it may not, but it's all of the fear and the panic surrounding this is causing people to do things. So, yes, cashless society, again, is floated. In our um, first stimulus bill, one group of people tried to slip in a digital dollar, and then it got thrown out, thankfully. But they tried to do it right there, and they said, well, if we want to get money quickly to all those people out there in, the, in America – The best way to do it is to just give them all a digital wallet, kinda like you have with Bitcoin or Ethereum and and we'll just send money directly to the wallet. Boom. They have money in their pocket to spend and it's all electronic. Well, that failed. But you can see this is coming and it's coming, you know, all the nations of the world, the central banks, the big banks, the global banks are all talking about digital currency
0: now. with a passion and they're looking at this is the time to do it. Uh, There'll be some people I suspect thinking well what's wrong with digital currency? It is incredibly convenient and to talk against it sort of spacks of the hysteria of the 666 and the mark of the beast and implants and all that sort of thing which actually if you think about it with a cool head and don't enter into the hysteria that can attend that kind of thing actually does have something to it. You know the possibility of being Mm -hmm. implanted with a microchip which we See becoming increasingly socially acceptable, especially in places like Sweden in recent years, or some other form of biometric identification hooked up to the facility to make digital monetary transactions. But nevertheless, some people would look at that and say, oh, that's just hysteria. But there are significant dangers, aren't there, in moving away from cash and going over fully to digital forms of money, aren't there?
1: Well, cash has always provided a measure of privacy, Mm. there's a good yes. 20% of people in America who are not banked. Right. They call them the unbanked. Yeah. <laughs> they get a paycheck. They go down to cash your paycheck at a paycheck service. There's plenty of them around and you get cash in your pocket and that's how you live. But unbanked people, have two problems for the global elite. One is you can't track them. Number two, you can't charge any fees to them because there's no transactions to get after. Mm -hmm. So the original technocrat dream of having a cashless society, number one means everybody plays ball. Everybody must be involved in the system. And that would bring essentially all of the unbanked people throughout the world into the banking system. Well, that's a boon for bankers. Yeah. We charge fees for things, for accounts, for checks, for credit card, uh, late fees, bounce check fees, and all that kind of stuff. That, that's, a, that's an immediate economic market for all of the banks of the world to wrap these people in. So that's a big driver. Mm-hmm. But the most important driver is the, the ability to track mm-hmm. the purchases and the activities of people who are in the banking system. Because once they're in, once they've been properly identified – And global identification is something else that's going alongside of this. Hmm. Once you're identified, all of a sudden you can begin to track all of their activities back to their original, you know, their global ID, if you will. So you have visibility on what they're buying, where they're moving about, you know, the nature of their purchases, um, Income oh. received, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. All of a sudden, everything is just laid bare.
0: It's a huge amount of power, isn't it? To have information of that quantity and quality—a vast amount of power.
1: It, it is, and that kind of data means control. Mm. That those people can be controlled and manipulated. And I think we probably talked before yes. about how clever marketing is today. With uh, you know, with like on the internet, you, if you're talking about something or you go look at a certain web page or whatever, all of a sudden ads start <laughs> coming up on every other browser you touch anywhere. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to sell you that thing. I said, well, I didn't even talk about that over here. Why? You know, what's going on? Well, they got ways to track you back and forth. And some people have discovered by trial and error that uh, many televisions today, so-called smart TVs, actually listen to your conversations and they pick up buzzwords out of your conversation they begin to deliver ads to you predicated on those buzzwords and you know, smartphones have been shown to have listened from time right. to time on same kind of conversations and you may say something over here in front of your smartphone and then go to your computer and all of a sudden ads start popping up you say what are <laughs> you? <laughs> well knowledge means yeah. power to control and when when those advertisements can be delivered selectively, to manipulate the consumer. The connection may never be seen by the consumer, but they are indeed being controlled.
0: Absolutely. And to bring this just something of a biblical perspective, of course, ultimately, there is the power in order to switch off somebody's ability to buy and sell if they don't say and do the right things, which is always a very spine-chilling kind of thought. It's there in the Bible, and we see the potential for that shaping up as we speak.
1: We do, and again, if you think back to china 's social credit scoring system, that philosophy behind that at least is uh, already seen in many different contexts in the West, uh, not exactly like theirs, but you can see the, the the rise of the philosophy behind it that yes, this is what we want to do. we want to reduce everything to an artificial intelligent algorithm so that people can be manipulated according to algorithm. Mm-hmm. And we see this mentality everywhere. We see it not only in like, in trading in the stock market, for instance, most of it's being done by AI today, not by humans, but also in delivering uh, the rules and the channel in, in which you must behave by artificial intelligence, depending on the things you have done. Like you went to these certain places, you were involved with certain churches, you were involved with certain political movements or whatever, and all of a sudden, you're artificial intelligence cocoon (laughs) starts to direct you in the certain areas that you never go by yourself you find out you've been captured
0: yeah it's amazing you know we tend to think of individuals making decisions about other individuals oh so and so hasn't obeyed the, the rules in some way well let's tweak this let's switch their ability off to do such and such you might find that in a kind of dystopian 1970s movie or something like this but with the advent of ai we're looking at something totally automated aren't we where if you don't behave in the, the right kind of ways, and of course we see this with the virus, don't we? If you, if you don't have the immunity, if you haven't had this much-touted vaccine or whatever, then, um, yeah, you're going to find yourself banned automatically from entering such-and-such such a building or such-and-such such a venue. That seems to look forward to a situation where all these kinds of controls could be totally automatic.
1: That's their goal. That is the goal of the people who write these algorithms. And you say, well, where are these, where are all these algorithms coming up? Much of it comes out of Silicon Valley in places like that, you know, where the, the AI centers are, you know, the, the people that are immersed in that culture are all flavored by this technocrat mentality that data is gold. Artificial intelligence will not work without data. It has to have data to learn. So. The push for real-time data or a real-time data feed is understandable from that point of view because what, today, when an AI program is created, the best they can do to test it is to take historical data and kind of play through it, if you will, like on a VCR. You kind of play through it with a you know with a forward and stop button, and you pretend you're live, but you're using historical data. And they can get a long ways to figure out how it will behave as it learns and so on. But there comes a time when every AI program must have a source of live data in order to really spread its wings and fly. That's what they've done in China. They have real-time data feeding into the AI there. And that's why there's such a push in the West to feed all of this data into AI programs so that they have a live feed good example of this is the apps now, uh, the new newly released apps coming out on smartphones that demonstrate social distancing. Or if you've come in contact with somebody who has the COVID virus, they're doing this down in Australia right now. There's, a lot of people are downloading this app. And ostensibly, if you pass too close to somebody else who has COVID, then you don't. You can get a phone call from the government suggesting that, hey, you know, you passed by somebody to didn't know it but you passed somebody today that had was infected and you should go down and get tested right away
0: <laughs> is this the covid safe thing is that what it's called yes that's exactly what it's called. Mm.
1: yes mm. well this is real-time mm. data you see um real-time data feed this this is the
0: the nirvana for ai programmers is getting that data. but don't they real-time don't they claim that it'll be an, anonymized or something you won't actually be able to identify who the people are in a personal way don't they
1: actually, no. In Australia, they're saying that they're protecting the data, that it will be deleted, I think, in 21 days, and it's going to be stored in some kind of a secure cloud that is being configured by Amazon, which almost makes (laughs) me laugh right off the bat. But but they're making all these promises. Nobody will ever see your data, but the government... And, of course, the app developer and the people in the middle and whatever. But, uh, you know, they're saying to the people, be calm, be, you know, don't worry about it. We're going to protect your data and nobody will know. But how can they contact the people to have them get tested if they don't know who they are? You see, how can they know that somebody's in contact with you that has it, except that they know who that person is and where their smartphone is? Of course, they do know. Yeah. So, you know, the promises of anonymity anymore are pretty thin will protect you but then almost every week now we hear of some major data hack where you know hundreds of thousands of passwords and names and email addresses and everything else have been you know lost or discovered on the dark web it's like well, yeah well, well it's a
0: similar sort of thing here in the uk because obviously they're talking about a similar kind of approach to it and of course there are privacy concerns and the like mm-hmm. but you know the government can say as much as it likes that uh, it won't be digging into personal data. But Big Brother Watch has come out with a statement looking at the the Investigatory Powers Act that was signed into law just a few years ago. And that permits the government to access personal phone data. Already, for health reasons, there's a little quote from the legislation itself, it is necessary to obtain communications data for a purpose of falling within this subsection is a bit legalese here, if it is necessary to obtain the data, dot, dot, dot. And one of the cases is for the purpose of protecting public health. Right. So if they want to, they can access your personal information.
1: Well, it's pretty much out of control around the world. Uh, the government and the and technocrats operating through the government insist on having live feeds of data and, you know, personal data as well. Uh, health records are a goldmine right now. So yeah, I know yeah. people are saying, yeah, it's good to have this, you know, to track the coronavirus. But in normal times, if there was no virus and there was no hysteria, they would not go for any of this type of privacy invading stuff, I don't think but
0: they are today. Hysteria is achieving this, yes. Can you tell us, I've got to ask you this, because this is so much in the alternative media, can you tell us something about ID2020? I understand this is a corporate alliance, and it's advocating what they call, and this is a direct quote, digital identity globally. Yes. I see an an immediate connection here because you've got to identify people digitally all around the world to achieve the kinds of things we have in, in mind in this conversation. And it has yeah. partners with Microsoft and the Global Alliance for Vaccinations and Immunization, the Rockefeller Foundation, a lot of sort of concerning connections are concerning foundations. How does this all tie in? Because people are talking about ID 2020.
1: I know, and they should be talking about it, and they should be very concerned about it if it were possible to give a digital id and in particular a blockchain oriented digital id that would make um, you know that would not only encrypt it but make it virtually impossible to duplicate once a person has such a digital id that is backed up by a blockchain algorithm everything that person ever does from that day forward can be tracked back to that particular id so if, for instance, let's say that the banking system has like some kind of a digital currency in place where you're walking, you go to Germany and you buy something and you plop down your card uh, or you wave it over the thing to get contactless payment and your ID is built into your card now. Well, it doesn't matter where you go, but every time you do something, any kind of transaction is tied to your ID that encrypted part of blockchain code, if you will, goes back to a central data system to be stored with your ID attached to it. And it doesn't matter what you do. You can go buy a piece of real estate. Boom. You know, a code is generated on that transaction is attached to you and goes into the central database. If anybody comes back later and says, well, I want to know what Pat Wood did for the last year. Well, all they got to do is push one button and boom, everything that's attached to my digital ID shows up on a screen or however becomes visible. And there's no mistake that anything ever, you know, is really associated with somebody else. There's no fraud really can take place in such a system. At least they say everything they see about you there is really about you, but it exposes your entire life. To people who don't need to know your entire life and the reason they want to know your entire life is so that you can again further be manipulated. And if your health records are part of that digital ID and if your transactions and travels and communications and social media posts and everything else in the world is connected to that ID, then they know more about you than you know about yourself that you can remember about yourself. And they will be able to use that with artificial intelligence algorithms again to conjure up a course of action for you that they determine, not you, that they determine for you. Let's say, let's say an insurance company, health insurance company. A health insurance company wants to write policies, it wants to maximize its profits. So you come along and you say, hmm, that company looks good over there. I'm going to, I'm going to fill out an application and you submit your application for health insurance policy. They have access to all this data. You don't, but they do. So they run their predetermined model of the the model insurance owner, and they run your data against that screen. And they find out that you've got type 2 diabetes right away, of course, (laughs) let's just say. And they find out that You're politically conservative or you're a Christian or whatever. You know, they know all this stuff now. If you don't fit the profile of the customer they want, you're just going to get a letter of rejection. Why did you reject me? You'll never know what happened. (laughs) you <laughs> know, whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. To come back to the point that I, I mentioned earlier on, this could all be all, all automatic. All-, <laughs> all of these things could be increasingly become totally automatic. Exactly. So, yeah, no consciousness involved at all.
1: In Facebook right now, when somebody makes a post on Facebook that Facebook decides is offensive, all they receive is an email or just a notice on the screen that your post has been removed because it didn't meet community standards. Yeah. They never say why. By and large, is a very weak appeal policy to get around it, you know, if you're really misjudged, but if they just decide they don't like you, boom, you're gone. And the claim is you, you violated community policies, but you, that you never can figure out what they were that you violated. <laughs> so you don't violate them again. Once people have data on you, they can just play games with your mind until you just crazy mm. with mm. this kind of stuff. By and large, you'll never know how you got manipulated, but, um, uh,
0: Okay, so to bring it back to this digital identity globally, that's the phrase, this is the ID2020 crowd. Am I right in thinking that does in fact connect into sustainable development? Uh, Because we do have one of these UN sustainable development goals, and I'm specifically looking at goal number 16.9. And it says, by 2030, to provide legal identity for all, including birth registration. Now, I can't, for the life of me, I cannot believe that that is anything other than digital identity for all. By 2030, it's got to be that. So we have a window there straight through into sustainable development and technocracy.
1: Yes, absolutely. Mm. All of this stuff is written in this because it's an economic system. Mm. And you see the trails of these kinds of things all over, and the sustainable development goals are there for anybody to read. Like, you've got them, I've got them. Anybody can go and search them and find them in a heartbeat. You know, they're, they're fishing for stuff that will completely, uh, I want to say slice and dice. It doesn't mean cut up, but they'll slice and dice the data of the world to suit what they want
0: to do. Well, the last thing I've got to ask you here is, I mean, this is the thing that's always asked at the end of such interviews, which deal in in matters that are, well, quite dystopian like this is, you know, what are the solutions? What can you offer as a solution? And I know I've asked you this sort of thing before. But in this particular situation, what occurred to me, and I want to put this to you, whether you agree with me, is that although, you know, we're not going to be able to change everything, nevertheless, we have a situation that has developed relatively quickly. And we have all these vested interests that have just been waiting for something like this to happen, and they're jumping in a big way. And they're trying to convince us that the world is going to be new. It's never going to be the same again. Of course, trivially, that's going to be true. Of course, it's never going to be the same again, because things change all the time. But the way a lot of these opinion pieces are written, for example, and I have a very famous one here from the MIT Technology Review, which you probably know very well, the way it seems to be written, and things like this are written, is that it's never going to be the same again in a really big way as if these changes that are happening are something we've got to, we must live with, we must embrace. And my question to you is, do you agree with me that a way out of this, as we go forward, is to actually dig our heels in and say, okay, there have been changes. There have been necessarily some changes that have taken place. We've got to fight this thing. Although I don't like the metaphor of war. Maybe we'll get back to that in a second. But we've got to demand, as we go forward, that these things are rolled back. Everything that we can clearly see is not necessary anymore. They must be rolled back. And we must be absolutely vigilant about this. I mean, do you agree with my basic position on that?
1: I do. I do. And that's that's pretty much what we're experiencing right now in the States. Mm. And I think that people have a responsibility to stand up and be counted just on this issue. But I've talked about this before, and other people have written about it quite succinctly, probably better than I that there is an anti-human and an anti-civilization nature to sustainable development and technocracy that just really kind of defies explanation, but it is anti-human, it's anti-human dignity it's anti-humanity as being, uh, you know, created by the God of heaven, for instance. Uh, they completely disavow all that stuff. Right. Yeah. They say only science is a source of truth. There's no other source of truth anywhere in the world except for science. Mm-hmm. And they have it, and we don't, so we have to listen. So they, you know, they have been promulgating Uh, anti-human ideology and uh, you know that lady that professor we talked about at the beginning of the program that said what we need to do is just just let the human race go extinct that's not anti-human yes it is so when people are resisting this i really think what they need to keep in their mind is we want human dignity placed back at the center of our society where it belongs We are people not cattle we're made in the image of God, not in the image of a rock or a tree or whatever. We want to be part of society as human beings who have some right to autonomy because we are created, in fact, in the image of God. And I think, especially for Christians, I, I tell you know people over here that I have opportunity to speak to about this. It's time to run for high ground as far as being a Christian is concerned. For all of the weak need. Christians who are just too timid and too scared and too paranoid right now about all this stuff's going on. I say, listen, you need to take a deep breath and run for high ground where your father in heaven is located. You got, you better get in touch and you better do it now and figure out where your line in the sand is, where, you know, where you stand in this world. Sure. And if you don't like the world the way it is, or if you don't like the way people are being treated and unjustly or, You know, you need to get out there and do something about it and speak up. But in the end of it, we're fighting an anti-human, anti-civilization ideology here that will not stop advancing on its own. It simply will not.
0: That's a very broad view, and I do agree with you. But just to bring it down to the detail of the situation at the moment, just for an example. Okay, if we're presented with an option to download an app, let's say it's not mandatory – well, then perhaps we should seriously consider, perhaps I shouldn't download that app. Or we do download it. And then we say to ourselves, well, look, as soon as this thing is no longer required, I'm not going to follow the lazy route and say, okay, I'll just leave it there because it might have some other purpose. And maybe there'll be some narrative that sells us. Oh, you know, it's good to leave it there for some other purpose. We say, no, I'll delete it now. You know, these very simple things. But my fear is the narrative is going to be recrafted over and over, over the months to come, to say that a lot of these measures that are being brought in have really got to stay, because we've got to keep this world safe. The world is different now. We can't go back to how we were before. We need a safe, controlled world, and these measures need to stay. And that is, on this practical level, that is what I'm you know, feeling within myself, we must, we absolutely must resist. Can I just read a little bit from that MIT article? Certainly. Just a paragraph here, which you know so well, but uh, people may not have come across it. This is uh, in the middle somewhere. It says, quote, we don't know exactly what this new future looks like, of course, but one can imagine a world in which to get on a flight, perhaps you'll have to be signed up to a service that tracks your movements via your phone. The airline wouldn't be able to see where you'd gone, but it would get an alert if you'd been close to known infected people or diseased hotspots spots there'd be similar requirements at the entrance to large venues government buildings uh, public transport hubs there would be temperature scanners everywhere and your workplace might demand you wear a monitor that tracks your temperature or other vital signs uh, where nightclubs ask for proof of age in future they might ask for proof of immunity an identity card or some kind of digital verification via your phone showing you've already recovered from or been vaccinated against the latest virus strains so there you go the latest virus strain this is looking forward to something carrying on carrying on I'm um, going back to this quote here from another paragraph is the last thing i'll say here quote the world has changed many times and it is changing again all of us will have to adapt to a new way of living working and forging relationships now even now that's the end of that quote even now I can see in, the, in that paragraph and in that article an attempt to craft the narrative at least this is how I, I see what he's writing here to craft the narrative to keep this thing going to say this isn't going to roll back not in any substantial way. This is going to carry on, which implies that these changes that are brought in are something we've got to live with. And this is what I'm within myself saying, no, no, even if they're, even if they're needed now, we've got to demand that they roll back and we've got to make individual decisions, even trivial decisions like deleting the, the wretched thing, you know, to make sure that these things do in fact get rolled back. It's going to take some willpower to do it, but I do think it's going to be necessary.
1: Well, it will. And recognizing exactly who is bringing these aberrant things to us, I think, is really important because it's not necessarily the politicians. And it may be something that only we can do personally. Like you said, just unplug that app or or don't do it or leave your cell phone at home once in a while or whatever. But I wrote an article this morning and posted it, and I titled it "Reengineering Society, Technocrats Rule, Politicians Drool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's my here's basically the point of the article mm. um, as the pandemic winds down, the U.S. economic system is about to spring back to life. So it's back to business as usual. Right. Mm. Wrong. Mm. Uh, thanks to ignorant politicians, technocrats have skillfully used the coronavirus panic to wedge themselves between the citizens and their duly elected representative government leaders. And then down in the article, I cite a document that was released from the CDC. That's the Center for Disease Control yeah. in, our, in the United States. And um, they have released an, a document called the the uh, Interim Guidance for Restaurants and Bars, among others. There were other things involved in it, too, but it was only a partial document that got released. And they give specific things that these uh, various entities must do, like churches and restaurants and bars and, you know, buses and stuff like that uh, have to do uh, as we, quote, start up again. And, of course, it's got all of this detail and stuff, phase one, phase two, phase three. It's all going to be micromanaged and stuff. And. So for bars and restaurants, for instance, they can open with – in phase two, they're allowed to open with limited capacity. Restaurants may open dining rooms with seated capacity that allows for social distancing. So it's not going to stop. It's like, oh, so I'm going to reopen, but my tables have to be six feet apart now, uh, meaning that I'm only going to get half yeah, the yeah, tables yeah. in my area that oh. I have room
0: for. Right, right. See, this is what concerns me. And I I can understand the argument that these things need to be staged, and maybe we do need to have social distancing in order to, you know, not to have another peak in the infections and all that sort of thing. I can understand that. What I'm frightened of, not frightened, concerned about, is that we may become so habituated to receiving these instructions and obeying them and always, you know, with the right intention, we want to do the right thing, that we become totally habituated to this and then it becomes a way of life. I mean, I, I want to give this example. It really is a metaphor. It is a practical example, but I think it also operates as a metaphor for all the kinds of things we've just been talking about, to resist manipulation of this going forward, um, the metaphor is of using the cash machine again. I know it seems so trivial, but, you know, when this is over, I am going to deliberately get back into the habit of pulling that money back out of the wall and paying with cash That seems so trivial. But if we all did that, they would not be able to pull this one about the cashless society. That's just one thing. So I think that metaphor there of deliberately stepping back into a way of life that we had before would help to put something of the brakes on this kind of thing. But, But it does require some presence of mind not to allow the narrative rewriters to perpetuate this beyond the reality of the pandemic. Which, you know, it's not going to last forever. This is one of the things I detest about the war metaphor, right. although it has some elements of truth to it and all that. But nevertheless, you know, the virus is not, it's not even a living thing. It's like a toxic dust, yes. effectively. It's not something that can strategize and plan. So there are real limits to this analogy to war. And I do often think that this is really used as a, as a, to some extent, an understandable technique to get people all working together on this problem, this struggle that we have, I, I get that. But I do think there are dangers with that terminology. And one of the things I think can be the casualty of this kind of language is that we stop thinking for ourselves. That's what happens in war. You know You take orders, you obey orders, <laughs> uh, but we really do have to keep thinking. And when we come out of this conflict I won't call it a war, when we come out of this conflict. We must then stand our ground and say, well, okay, I'm not going to just accept orders unthinkingly. I'm going to return to who I am. You talked about how this can be dehumanizing, this whole thing. Well, we need to stand within our humanity, as you and I both agree, created in the image of God. So I'm going to now express my humanity in the things that I consider to be important. And by way of this metaphor, pull that cash back out of the wall. I know it's a silly example, but I do think it works for me to remind me of the tasks that does, in fact, present to us in the days to come. Yes, that's nice. a good point. Sorry, there's a little bit of a rant there, but uh, <laughs> I do feel strongly about that. Anyway, thank you ever so much, Pat, for coming on again. It has, as always, been a you know a fascinating conversation, a challenging conversation. I think, as with all programs and all guests, there are some you know slight differences of opinion on things, and I think that's absolutely fantastic because you know what I'm trying to do here is is not just you know have a cosy, pleasant conversation where we always agree on everything, but to you know share controversial ideas and have a, a back and forth. And I think that, that really is the way. To to get at what's going on so I thank you ever so much for coming on and for sharing your thoughts with us your concerns and of course I will certainly again direct people to go to technocracy.news and to get hold of your books I'll put the the links there in the show notes could you just tell the audience something about technocracy.news because not everybody will be familiar with it what you actually do there what they'll get if they go to the website
1: Well, exactly. Technocracy.news is about five years old now, and I have thousands and thousands of articles that I've posted there over time, fully indexed and fully categorized, uh, where people can find out just about every aspect of technocracy they would want to see. And I have uh, taken articles from all over the world, from every continent, uh, from different types of uh, writers and so on, some academics, some not. But um, the idea is to Show people what other people are saying about not me. I don't write all these articles. I want people to see what others are saying about technocracy, how they are viewing it, how they're pushing it, et cetera. And so I usually will make commentary at the top of every article just to give it context. But aside from the articles I write personally, uh, the rest of them are from other sources that relate to the topic of technocracy. And it's interesting that our readership comes from all over the world. We've had people come from every country on the earth. It's just amazing to me. Absolutely. I never intended this when I started. I never had any idea. But it confirms the world is concerned about technocracy.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> and yes, it does. You've yeah. got to find
1: it. And let me say, for people in the UK or people in, in Europe, my books are available on Amazon there. Hmm. If you absolutely want to have a signed copy from me personally, then, okay, you're going to have to buy it from me and pay almost as much for shipping to get it there. (laughs) And there is a
0: Kindle version, and there is an audio book available on my latest book. Oh, excellent. Yes. And you also have a podcast, don't you, that's been going for quite a while now.
1: It has. And I started out just kind of um, summarizing the news uh, every week. And I recently kind of graduated to video. Which I probably will continue because I can do a little more show and tell oh,
0: yes. on a video.
1: Yes. It's on YouTube. You just type in Technocracy or Technocracy News on YouTube and you'll find the channel. It's also available on podbean.com, uh, which has an app. <laughs> there you go. It has an app <laughs> yes. for your phone. You can listen to it through the app, uh, the Podbean app. Yeah, I've, I've got a lot of videos and a lot of stuff on all over the Internet that, that I've done people can find pretty easily if they just do a search okay. and get into the swim of things.
0: Well, I am very conscious that I sort of hijacked the narrative there right <laughs> oh, no. at the end. And I said my <laughs> spiel, but what I would like to do, if it's okay with you, I would like to give you the opportunity to have the last word. If there is anything as the take home message for people before we actually sign off here.
1: All right. This whole coronavirus thing which I'm still calling the great panic of 2020 has really woken a lot of people up to the thought that maybe what I've been saying in the past is closer to the truth. than they wanted to admit in the beginning mm. that maybe there is technocracy involved in this, that it's not socialist or communist or Marxist or whatever, you know, maybe some of the things that i said in the past about FinTech and about, you know, digital IDs and you know, about economic control and stuff make, more sense now than they ever did before because the global system is shut down so you know i would just say that's kind of an encouraging thing in a way that there are more people waking up today than they have been in the last say five years (laughs) that's a sick twisted view of 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 the pandemic i realize, but i didn't wish it and i don't want it but you know More people are starting to see the light of this
0: as a result. Absolutely. I I think it is hopeful because, to come back to my point, and I will not rant about it, (laughs) the more people that understand about this, the greater chance that we will all, in our own little ways, switch off and go back to normality after this. so yes yes uh, i am so grateful for your work and very grateful for you coming on the program It is, as always a privilege to speak with you patrick wood thanks ever so much for coming on it's been a delight to speak to you again
1: yeah my pleasure